and welcome back to Subspace Radio. I can hear the cinematic music swelling around us, Rob. I as can, we... It's as if Jerry Goldsmith is right here with us. I know, it's uncanny. It's like, it's, it sounds like his music, but it's not quite exactly his music. Yeah, it's... You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, I actually surprisingly do. It's sort of like the guy <laughs> who came in and took the score in the second Harry Potter film, but it wasn't mm. actually John Williams' score. You need to do just enough to justify your paycheck, and so we don't have to pay for the original. And you use that wonderful Get Out of Jail free card, homage. <laughs> we are here, of course, to talk about Star Trek Picard Season 3, Episode 1, and the themes we saw in it that take us back into Star Trek history. Yes, that's right. Um, After our divergence into the animated series where you right. unexpectedly threw in a, let's do a whole season review, Rob. Notes, notes that don't it, actually exist. I'm just mind noting. <laughs> if Rob sounded unprepared in that last episode, that was entirely my fault because <laughs> I threw him a huge curveball. But that, look, if you can't go into a podcast unprepared, what's the point of doing a podcast anyway? I, I hear you're an improviser, Rob. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And I proved that... Probably I'm a little bit rusty after last <laughs> But I'm prepared and ready to get back into our old school format, talk about the episode, break it off into the wider world and see how I can compare it and bring it back to Deep Space Nine. That's the yes. familiar ground. Welcome back and welcome to 2023. Or welcome to the 25th century, as it were. Exactly. Oh, well done. Before we talk about this specific episode, and I am dying to, let's first talk about Star Trek Picard to this point. And I know you you recently, Rob, you, you mainlined that series to get prepared for season three. What trajectory were you on as you, you entered the atmosphere for Star Trek Picard season three? Look, I hate being one of those people who align with this vocal minority that seemed to have besmirched all fandom, but I'm hovering around them, but I'm not completely invested in them. So it's sort of like, mm. I agree with a couple of ideas, but when they go into their really extreme stuff, I go, that's not what I signed up for. So yeah. I, like many other people, were incredibly excited to have Picard back and as season one kind of went along its way, I got more and more upset and sad. I tried my hardest to stay tuned in and go, no, this will be good. And it's a, it's a common thread I have as a fan in any of the IPs that I followed. I'm yeah. the one who's always at the front going, come on guys, it's okay. This campaign can still survive. Even though like <laughs> we've got limbs lost and it's, I'm like the black knight going, it's just a flesh wound. But by the end, I just had completely lost interest so much so that I did not touch season two at all. And yeah, little echoes and rumors online confirmed that for me. But with the invite to do a podcast from Mr. Kevin Yank, he drags me back into this world of having to be up to date. So I devoured all of season two in a matter of days during my summer holiday break over here in Australia. And look, there's some really good stuff in there. There's some nice points and moments but overall i got to the end and i went what is happening here <laughs> what what why but going into season three i'd heard a lot of the stuff backstage as we know we talk about a lot that kurtzman and goldman have handed over 
Picard to this new showrunner who started out working as a dog's body on... Yeah, he was a PA in Star Trek Voyager, I think. Yes. And then he became Braga's like personal assistant. assistant. Yeah. And so this is a guy embraced in Star Trek lore and not caught up in that whole, but to make a new and flash and sweary and, and dark and bold, just going, or oh, we can do Star Trek. So I was, I was excited to come back, but yeah, season two was rough going. There was, uh, it was an improvement in some ways on season one, but yeah, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a mess and I could see the early stages of something different happening because this crew that they had spent an entire season hoping our emotional states would be invested in it. They just went, this isn't working. So let's just get rid of all of them, which was hilarious. And now they're going, one thing that really peeved me off. One thing I liked about season one, I loved the Romulan couple. I loved Picard's Romulan couple who he kind of saved from yeah. the destruction of Romulus. I went, these guys are great. They're a beautiful couple. There's a great relationship with them. And then season two starts and within the first five minutes, they've given away the husband's dead because we want to set up this female Romulan as a love interest. And I've gone, mm -hmm. oh, that is Oof. so clumsy. That yeah, is yeah. so jarring. And that, and that kind of put me on the back foot, even just as we had started. But um, Yeah, it's a means to an end brand of storytelling where they know, they have predetermined the thing they want to do in order to cause an emotional reaction. And then they reverse engineer a justification for it which comes off as clumsy it was very much a case of we want this to happen so everything we yeah we're switching everything also the story was quite light in some ways and had some that whole traveling back in time jovial type approach but the pacing of both of those seasons is super weird yes. there are moments there are moments where the pacing is right on point and it's firing on all cylinders and you're like that is the best episode of this season yeah but it's a transition point between going too slowly to going too quickly or going too quickly to going too slowly you get a taste on the way through of what a satisfying pace would be but they don't let you get comfortable because they're about to overcorrect in the other direction both seasons have that problem I you're think. going through a drive-thru and they're like throwing yeah. ice cream at you and you go <laughs> oh that's cool. but yeah it was and plus there was a different form of darkness season one there was incredibly dark brutal almost defiantly snubbing noses at star trek hardcore fans going we're just killing off these characters that we brought mm. back that you had invested stuff in but they're, they're just minor characters who cares and bringing this whole subplot about uh, Picard's mom and her mental health issues and her ultimate suicide was incredibly dark and incredibly clumsily handled. It's an incre it. incredibly yeah. important issue and a delicate issue that needs to if be If you go there, you owe a satisfying story and a satisfying resolution. So my problem is not that they went there. No. My problem is that when they got there... It wasn't in service of anything revelatory or or deep or satisfying. No, it was really quite insulting and really quite, yeah. Maybe I'm over overstating it a bit, but a little bit damaging yeah. to, to treat it in such a way. So low expectations, I guess, is how we can sum up your... Uh... My interest was peaked when I went, oh, okay, so they're coming back. Oh, no, no, yeah. they're all coming back. And much like it was a gag on some show when they were talking about the Jackson 5 coming back and someone said, what, even Tito? And they're going, what, even LeVar? They got LeVar back? 
Click on the button. Wow. And he got his daughter in there. That's probably the reason why he probably went, eh. mm. Nepotism is yeah. strong in the 25th century. But yes, I was, my interest was piqued. And when I heard the, the old hands, the old regime has handed it over to new blood. That got me quite excited. How about you? Quite similar, like cautiously optimistic, I think is not quite right. You know, the old saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. This was a fool me three times season. Yeah. So you went into season two, after season one, you went into season two going, no, they, this could be all right. Season two had an incredibly strong start, mm. which is what has me even today after what I think we are about to agree is a great start to a season of Star Trek. I am still <laughs> nevertheless bruised from the disappointment of the high highs at the start of season two of Picard and then where all of that ended up. It's look, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Okay, guys? It, but, yeah. In storytelling, beginnings are easy, endings are so hard. Making that all amount to something that feels like an earned ending that leaves them changed in a way that was worth the audience's time to show up and watch, that is the hard part of storytelling. And neither of the first two seasons of Picard nailed that. I think the jury is out on whether they will do that in season three. Do they have a stronger start under their feet here? I think so. Do they know in advance where they're going? And is that going to be worthwhile? I hope so. The reunion, as it were, is both worrying to me and encouraging to me. Like, hopefully all of these stars saw in their parts in the story a worthwhile story to be told. And this is what we're hearing in the interviews and the press junkets as the writers met with each of them individually and asked, where would you like to see your character at the start of the season? What arc would you like to see them go on that we have not seen before from them? How are they different all these years down the line from when they, we last saw them in Nemesis? Those questions the actors are telling us were answered not just to their satisfaction, but to their delight. And they are feeling like they're getting to do deeper, more meaningful stories for their characters. At the same time, I'm sitting here going, you only got 10 episodes. Yeah. That's little more than one episode per character, yeah. if we're going to tell a satisfying story arc, let alone what is the overarching narrative of this season. I am a little worried of just how many masters they are needing to serve with this story. And if, it, if they pull it off, it will be amazing. Yes. But I am trying not to get my hopes up because I've been burned twice before. So what you're saying is if the animated series had done exactly what Picard season three had done, maybe those two seasons might have worked out differently if they... If Roddenberry met with every single cast member and found out... It still wouldn't have been a good Saturday morning cartoon, Rob. <laughs> it's a Saturday Let's... morning cartoon. <laughs> Let's talk about high-level impressions of this episode. I'll go first. Go the, for it. The degree to which this is a love letter to cinematic Star Trek in a television format, like that is the overwhelming, that is the headline here is they are not making a season of TV Star Trek as we have learned to know it and in some cases love it. This is a 10-part Star Trek movie. And that's what they've a, been pushing a lot, haven't they? They've, that's what they've yeah. been pushing a lot and it's there on the screen. Like, it's not just hype. Watching this, it had the pace, it had the lingering establishing shots, it had 
the the blank page opening of in the 25th century of yeah. this is this is not a continuation this is not an episode this is a long form story we're going to tell you and we're going to start by telling you where we are and where everyone is and what the state of the world is and they are taking their time to roll all of that out on a grand scale that has every conceivable touchstone to remind you to echo the high points of the film franchise mm. right down to the typefaces and the musical motifs as soon as the font showed i'm going yep this is they are all in this is like yeah. all the chips have gone this is what we're doing and this is what every fan had been going this is what we expected from season one that would be this all yes in. Yeah. And despite the the press mentions of we're trying to make the missing final Star Trek TNG movie here, I was not expecting it to have the feel of a movie as you watch it. Mm. Terry Metalis coming forward from episodic Star Trek television at its like in its waning years, yeah. I did not expect him to be the same kind of Star Trek fan as you, Rob, who fell in love with the franchise in the film era. But that's what we see on the screen here. We de Yeah, we definitely see that extension of the next-gen film series. And but at the same time, the extension of the original series film franchise. Exa oh, exactly. And the feel of the original movies, the next-gen movies, compared to their original TV series, it's like they're different beasts. They're still the same characters. They're still the same ship, in inverted commas, even though it's mm. D-E-F-Q-F-O-Q. But they are different beats, so it's a different feel. And just as soon as it started, just how it felt returning to Chateau Picard, the vibe was different. How these characters talked, and especially because it's it's not season three. It's sure Raffi's there, and mm. Seven of Nine's there, and Laris is there. Wonderful actor, and she really was good. That how conversational their dialogue was is a million times better than any dialogue they had last season. Just when, when the two of them- when, when they're in front of the fire knee to knee and it's an exposition scene where Picard has received the distress call from Crusher and she says, as an ex-intelligence agent, here's what I'm seeing. And on rewatch, it's like, oh, that's an exposition scene. That is her telling Picard a bunch of stuff that Picard already knows. And yet it works because of the quality of the dialogue. It sounds true to the characters and it doesn't burst the bubble. Just the simple thing of the tone of her voice, she is in real danger. And you're there going, this, this, is, this is incredible. It's how yeah. you deliver exposition that everyone has to do it, but it's how you do it. It elevates you from being a fun basic writer to being an incredible writer. So many things that were just like written for me and people like me of, you know how much I love a space dock. And oh, we spent a lot of time at that space dock and we got to see it from the outside and from the inside. We got to see, take us out on thrusters and the space dock doors, which appeared to all intents and purposes to be a lift of cells of film from Star Trek II pasted right on the view screen there. It was um, so cinematic. Those yes. sequences at, at space dock were just... Cinematic and nostalgic as yes. well. Like for those of us who love seeing Starfleet 
at its heart, what does the home base of Starfleet look like? What is the sense of scale of ships coming and going and this giant mushroom in space that they can fly into and out of? That, that revisiting that sense of scale, let alone the production value that tells you this is every pixel is sweated to the nth detail. It, and it was all there. And but no inclusion of that cliche thing of having a scene with top brass or having that scene, that reference of all the admirals around and stuff like that. It was just from Chateau to, to Dingy Bar to heading to Titan. It's just this incredible set. It felt like it was all there, but you didn't have all the admirals going, you can't go there, Picard. Mm. You can't do mm. this, Riker. It was just a case of, yeah, it was represented by the place as opposed to the people and the gimmicks. It That scene was replaced with the dining table scene with Captain Shaw, which is a hell of a scene. Incredible scene. Yeah, just from that point on, they, yeah, within five minutes, they had more understanding of the character of Laris than anyone who wrote for season two. And just that whole process of Picard's moving on into retirement. <laughs> he's going to be the handbag for Laris moving back to this Romulan outpost and he's just going to see out his life while she's doing all the important stuff, which is an interesting. I could see a lot of the fans getting arced up going, oh no, he's got to be out. He's got to be out doing stuff. He can't just be a, a glorified plus one. The other thing that really heartens me and gives me, gets my hopes up for the season is the size of, or the scale of the stakes. We have seen so many, we, we have seen too many now seasons of Star Trek that amounted to a galaxy-threatening puzzle box mystery, the nature of which is not revealed to us until the very last episode. Mm -hmm. And it's like, surprise, it's metal snakes coming out of a hole in space. That's, that was what was behind this all along. And you better shoot those metal snakes real quick or the galaxy will end. Like, ultimately, that was the story of season one of Star Trek Picard. Yeah. And I am heartened that there is no, at least not yet, prove me wrong next week, Picard, sure. But at least setting the table here... All of the mysteries and all of the stakes are personal ones. Yeah. They are stories about an individual character that we care about in jeopardy and their friends breaking regulations to fly to their rescue. Uh, Star Trek Tree, anyone? The word, we'll, sir? We'll, we'll get you to rewatch that one yet, Rob. <laughs> the word is no, therefore I'll watch it anyway. Damn it, that's oh. right. <laughs> the quote um, fooled me in the end. But other little mysteries, like Rikers mentioned that uh, Troy and Kestra will appreciate the time away from him. Oh. Awkward pause. Like, that is a mystery, but it is a personal mystery that will affect a character or characters I care about. Oh, sad sack Riker. Oh my gosh. The closest thing to the overarching puzzle box that, I, that worries me is this don't trust Starfleet thing. And w the guy in the bar who's like listening in on Picard and Riker's conversation and the officer in the hallway at the start of the inspection on the Titan who just yes. gives Riker a strange look and it's not commented upon. There are There is a sense of forces at work here yes. that a conspiracy of some kind is to be revealed. And I hope that doesn't become what this season is about because what... I want this season to be about is those personal stakes for the characters we care about. 
Of course. And that's going to be the balance, isn't it? To get that balance of character and plot. But what is most important? Nimoy was the greatest at that going, let's just make a movie with no threat. There's a threat, but there's nothing mm. evil. How about we do that? And But how do you raise, oh, you can have the stakes, like the earth is in peril, it's going to be destroyed, blah, 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 blah. But we're not learning how to blow it up. We're not trying to figure out how to kill this thing. It's it. Let's focus on the characters in this situation and how they respond to this life-threatening situation. So it's finding that balance. And if the showrunner is steeped in as much uh, Star Trek film lore as I am, then yeah, he should be able to lean into that going, it can take a step back that threat and focus more on how that threat affects the characters. And if you've got 10 to get through, give him a bit of breathing space. Yeah. The only other thing I just have to mention, in case you didn't notice it, Rob, was Bev Crusher's puffy collared jacket. Uh, yes. It, it, has, it has the same puffer jacket thing that the Star Trek II and Star Trek Three away mission yes. jackets had going on. And I was like, that is a really puffy collar. And I know, <laughs> and, and I love it. I love it on you, Bev. I love the quips and the dialogue between Riker and Picard. And that felt more like cinema Riker and Picard than mm. when the TV series they had time to to break down an idea and collaborate and let's discuss this. Where in the movies you go, let quib, 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 quib. Um, I, I didn't believe Raffi was using at all of them. They're going, no. Nah. I'm not sure I quite believe that she and Seven have even broken up because she exposited that fact in the very same breath as everything else that was a part of her cover. Yeah. Now, they, I don't know what kind of long distance relationship they could be having with Seven clearly like very much on her own as first officer of the Titan now. It does indeed seem that they are broken up, but there's a little... There's a little crack open in my imagination for the fact that she was just lying there. Look, Seven can do so much better. Come on. <laughs> Raffi's okay. Now, Raffi's annoying. Yeah, I won't disagree. Yeah. yeah not she is annoying in a useful storytelling component sort of way. And that's what they've her. really delegated her to. They've just gone, you are just going to be the provider of plot. There yeah. you go. You are going to. That was a nice effect, though, with the Academy being like transport and like the earth coming out underneath it and just dropping out and then yeah. opening up and oh that was horrifying and beautifully realized i don't know how i would feel as rachel garrett knowing that i was being memorialized by a bright red statue like i'm not sure apart from satisfying the criteria of a red lady which could have been rewritten into something more aesthetically pleasing who has red statues who has red statues anywhere even I in know. the future i don't get it when it toppled into the water i thought good written get rid of it uh, rachel garrett deserves so much better garrett than you that. deserve so much better get a gold one miles o'brien has somewhere yeah <laughs> but yeah, the quibs and the back and forth with Riker and Picard was just exquisite. That relationship between Seven and Picard, that was pretty much only earned through last season. Yeah. It was good to see carried on. And that was hard work to go. Oh, remember, this was established last season and is earned. And I think Shaw is too mustache twirling to be bad. I think he's just a dick. I don't think he's a part of the conspiracy. Yeah, he's a bureaucrat. He's a rule follower. He runs a tight ship and is proud of it. He is not quite as dickish as Captain Styles in Star Trek III's Space Dock Escape sequence. He wow. doesn't have the writing crop, but he's not far off. He does wake up in bed 
and go, what the hell is going on? Yes. Like, it is very much a mirror. And if he had reached over his head to grab a riding crop, I would not have been <laughs> completely shocked. But yeah, the lovely thing about Shaw's characterization is it walks that line perfectly where you can say, you know what? Given available information... I am actually on your side, but yeah. why do you have to be such a dick about it? You don't have to be a dick about it. And that's actually Lavaba's daughter. Yes. No. Mm-mm-mm. No? Uh, Sydney LaForge, who we meet in this episode, is an actress who is not related to LeVar Burton. Right. We are yet to see Jordy's other daughter, who is played by his daughter in real life. Right. Okay. So his daughter is playing his daughter, but not that daughter. Not that daughter. We will see two daughters of Geordie LaForge this season. Well, after all we've talked about in previous episode about Geordie being such an awkward, awkward man when it comes to... He's a late bloomer. He's a late bloomer. (laughs) (laughs) He can see clearly now. So there we go. That's more stuff to look forward to. But yeah, we've only had one classic cat. They they can't do... There's going to have to be some doubling up soon. There's going to... There will. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that has... So we enjoyed it, but we've been burnt before and... Picard season three has to realize it's a marathon, not just a sprint. That's right. Yeah. We'll wait and see what happens. But this has inspired us to go back into the recesses of Star Trek. Oh, I've missed doing this, Kevin. (laughs) And and our main topic for this week is... Star-crossed lovers. Yes. Yes. And in the world of televised genre, it's a common thing. If you start a romance in a sci-fi or genre-based show... It's probably not going to go well. There's not many relationships that go the distance in genre-based uh, There's no drama theory. in stable relationships. Right? It's Yeah, you know, it's like Lois and Clark. It was ruined as soon as Terry Hatcher and Dean Cain got together. And then Terry X-Files. Hatcher. X-Files. Yeah, X-Files. Yeah, come on, mm. seriously. So, yeah, we're going to have a look at some of the star-crossed lovers. And, uh... I see three examples here. There is Picard and Laris, who, yeah. at the start of this, they're like, okay, sorry, we have a story to tell here. We need to pull you apart at yep. the start. They yep. seem in a better place than we've ever seen them before. That's they're very good. They're very settled. They're very much in love. And, but yeah. if Laris just happened to have been in that building that collapsed in front of us, it would not be a complete shock I'd at be surprised. this point. We know Riker and Troy are in trouble, which, come on, have those two not been through enough by now? Seriously. And, uh, and Seven and Rafi, like, they got an audio book between seasons that you can go back and listen to called No Man's Land, where oh, by all reports, they are happily together. But it didn't last. It didn't last, is what we're being told. Yeah. For Does, the sake of a good story, relationships there any are thrown on the fire. Yeah. Is there any love that lasts in Star Trek? Or what are our most regrettable breakups or relationship challenges? Yeah. Do you want to go first, Rob? Yeah. Look, I went more with all the relationship that coulda, that shoulda. Why didn't it? I'm mm. looking at, and it was done in such a cute way. And I've wanted to see more. And, and she's still out there somewhere. And we've talked about it before, and I want to see her again. It's about James T. Kirk and Dr. Gillian from yeah you did that one i took it off my list because i thought oh come on they weren't meant for each other but it was definitely my first thought oh she would have been so good for him she would have kept him on his toes and kept him keep he could have doing his traveling and stuff like that but keeping his feet firmly planted on the ground but she had stuff to do she had she couldn't wait around for a pretty much a man child to figure stuff out she had a science 300 catch-up learnings to do 
James T. Kirk just can't compete with the entire galaxy of the 23rd century, it seems. Whales are just the start of where Gillian's journey begins. Like yourself, I think I saw this film at a certain age where just like she had the the type of charm that appealed to me and I wanted it for James T. Kirk. They had a quippy, playful pizza dinner that had me rooting for them and just like the Alice in Wonderland of her being whisked away into his world just gave me this sense that surely she will fall head over heels for this man that has shown her this whole new world. But you know what? In hindsight, Gillian Taylor deserves better than James T. Kirk. And she didn't really fall for him. She kind no, of like... No, she didn't. No, but he got that whole sense of, but what are you... But I'm used to having... Th this isn't what usually happens. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> I don't even have your telephone number. <laughs> I still love how he delivered that. It's I'm there going, yeah, this is a guy who used to be top crap, and now he's clumsy and stumbling over lines and stuff. Um, That's right. And he's there going, but 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 I always get everything I want. She's going, well, no, you you don't get this. It is a particular like I I think that. That plot twist, if we can call it that at the end, where she conspicuously does not fall for James T. Kirk and puts her career first. It is something that ages better and better. I am, maybe it was written that way all along and I've just aged into the ability to see it through this lens. But with every passing year, the idea that she is more than a love interest, she had a career, she, she chose this big risky change in her life and she can deal with it herself. She can stand on her own two feet in this new world. And she doesn't need James T. Kirk's help to exist in this universe. And that's how um, good she is. She's yeah. like from the 20th century. And she's already picked up to be on a science vessel. So even though she is 300 years behind. Out of date. Yeah, it's almost unbelievable. It's almost a little bit too convenient. <laughs> But I'm going to believe it's because she is absolutely brilliant and incredible. And all these characters are real. Most weeks, I uh, fare you well at the end of this by quoting Gillian Taylor by saying, see you around the galaxy. See and that's because galaxy. that moment of her giving the kiss on the cheek and, and the uh, whisper in the ear, the whisper in the ear. And she does the it, look up. Oh, my yeah, God. It Kevin. really sticks with you. Oh, she's wonderful actress. Wonderful actress. And she was and in so Child's Play. I don't so much regret not getting to see James T. Kirk and Gillian Taylor get together. I mostly just regret not getting to see the further adventures of Gillian Taylor. Why hasn't anyone done Gillian Taylor's story? Come on. Mm. Mm. I want a spin-off of Gillian Taylor stuff. Lower Decks, if you can hear me, it's up to you. Crap, that would be great. Of oh, course. Wouldn't that be amazing? Lower Decks is the perfect vehicle for it. So mm -hmm. even though... Jillian Taylor would have been dead for some time, I'm sure. If they're going, <laughs> they will find a way. Animation finds a way. If they, yeah, if they're going back in live action to the mm. Enterprise with Pike, they will find a way to find Jillian Taylor. So yes, tell us your star-crossed lovers who were doomed to never be. I started by picking a small one, and it's just like Jillian Taylor. It's a character that we fall in love with in a single episode or a single story, and. Their connection, their romantic connection to one of our main cast members is severed at the end of it, and we never get to see more of them again, much as we would like to. This is an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, season four, episode 25, entitled In Theory. 
And it is the episode in which Data explores a romance with a crew member, Jenna DeSora, on board the Enterprise. Hmm. She has recently broken up with her long-term boyfriend. She's on the rebound oh. and, uh, and falls for Data, who, in his particularly mechanical way, stands out to her as thoughtful. He never forgets a fact about her. And her recently broken heart interprets that as care and attention and safety. And uh, they start a romance. And Data is very open about the fact that romance is a new experience for him. And he is he has created a new program, especially to navigate this experience with her. And at first, she is delighted by the him going out of his way to change himself to grow in order to make room for her in his life. But day by day, the signs start to stack up that the best data can do is perform an imitation of a relationship. Of course. Or act as if he cares for her. And towards the end, she, she confronts him about it and says, do you care for me? And data admits I am incapable of that emotion. Certainly, you occupy a significant amount of my processing power. <laughs> oh, he knows how to say, oh, oh the sugar-coated tongue of Data. There's a, there's a beautiful moment where Data calculates strategically that what is needed is a fight so that they can grow closer together as a couple. And so he very quickly shifts gears and accuses her angrily of, of treating him unfairly. <laughs> she is taken aback and he says, oh, is that not what I was supposed to do here? Is this not time for our first fight? <laughs> so it is so sweet and tragic that Data is doing more for another human being than he would ever do in service of making this relationship work. And yet it can never be what she needs, or at least that's where it ends ends up. She sums it up towards the end of, I've went from an emotionally unavailable man to a man that is incapable of emotion. Yeah. And it's so sad. And just like Gillian Taylor, she has that, that charm, that charisma, where you want her for the character we know, if only so that she'll stick around and continue to light up the screen and make them happy. But it is not to be. And played by Michelle uh, Scarabelli, for a Canadian yes. actress who I know from her work on the Alien Nation TV series, playing Susan Francisco. Wow. Is she equally charming in that role? Yes. It, like I'm a big fan of Alien Nation, the film, with James Caan and Mandy Patinkin, and then they went deeper with the TV show and explored this weekly process of and re relying a lot on the refugee problem of how people assimilate into society and how they are treated and... The family dynamic is explored really beautifully in that. She's a wonderful, you know, bringing that human quality to an alien character once a week within a slightly futuristic LA. Yeah, she's a wonderful actress and haven't seen this one, but it sounds like pure love fodder within the realms of Star Trek. There's a great B plot of the Enterprise being stuck in a field of invisible space pockets that cause people to fall through decks and die. And like the that provides some of the ticking clock and the tension to this. But the as TNG did well so many times, the A plot is the character plot right. here. And it is so good. Wonderful. That is definitely one I'd love to check out, if not just for catching up with Michelle Scarabelli. <laughs> 
What's your next one? Well, look, I've spent a lot of time talking about the biggest, the biggest relationship that we wanted to see happen, that it did happen, and then it ended. I've, but I've spoken about Kira and Odo over and over and over again. So this is not the place. Oh, I just, my brain said, but they got together in the end. It was happily ever after, wasn't it? And then I remembered the ending. Oh, you just see Odo yeah. in a tux absorbing himself into the collective and you into the the pool and you just go oh my god i'm done i'm done with romance oh she needed she deserves so much better rob oh yeah i know but that's why lower decks is good we see that she we don't know how her love life's going but she's in charge of tarak nor she's at least positive and happy so that's something. Oh, God. Oh, God. It's making... <laughs> anyway, I went to another movie, which I always thought... I, I'm disappointed that it's the tropes of film love interests who come in and you know they're only going to be around for one. I'm not mentioning... I'm not talking about Alfred Wooder, who wasn't really a romantic interest, but was a great presence for those mainstream audience members going to see Star Trek going... Uh, yeah, she uh, was the audience surrogate. The, yeah. She was the Al Alice in Wonderland. Exactly. Another. Anytime we have a reference to literature in Star Trek, I'm a happy man. Mm. Hello, mm -hmm. Alice. Welcome to Wonderland. I'm going to go to Insurrection again. I go back to there. Donna Murphy is gorgeous ah. and incredible and amazing as Ange. And I'm there going, you fool Picard. I don't care who you are, what, how much you want to explore. And that is perfection right there. She is incredible. And um, it was never going to be, never going to happen. She broadened his mind and slowed down time, literally. And that wasn't enough for Picard. Yeah. It is amazing what it takes for them to write a woman that seems a match for Picard or even that, make, that intimidates Picard by th their presence. Yes. The depth of experience of wisdom that comes with her immortality yep. effectively that the calm sense of this is all this has all happened before and it will all happen again and we're all here just to play our parts but never um, robotic never robotic no. this and great charming moments like she's lived for however many hundreds of years but never learned how to swim but she never got because she never got around to it never Never a Mary Sue type character where she can kick ass and be all that type of stuff, but never a damsel in distress. That's it. She is superhuman in her presence, but she is not magical. She is not unbelievable. No. She comes across as a full-fledged person that can meet Picard on equal terms. Yes. Yeah. It's a believable energy and a believable dynamic, and there's a great charisma. She's one of, yeah, incredibly experienced stage and screen performer and she does so much with whatever she's never really had a chance to shine in a leading type capacity in any major films or tv shows that i've seen she's always been come in done her thing and gone like her very small appearance in spider-man 2 is outstanding and she changes a role that's basically just her tragic death in that is to fuel alfred malia's character into evil things but she does more than that. You forget that she's just a plot point. And in this as well, you forget how much she fills the, her character space and it, it becomes a part of this world. And it's a, and you really feel it when they say goodbye at the end. It's a, yeah, it's a wonderful performance and a wonderful match for Patrick Stewart. 
And that's hard to find. It's hard to find a good match for Stewart on screen. Mm-hmm. Wendy Hughes did it in the Next Gen series. Great Aussie actor there. And Donna Murphy is more than a match for Patty McStewart. Do you get the sense that they're, the story is, has a tragic ending? Like, is the fact that they don't live happily ever after together just because she's a one-movie guest star and it, she, they couldn't afford her for the rest of the franchise? Or is there, is there the... There is a like, sense of a tragedy to the fact that this, these people, they convey this sense of we have everything we need here, we are happy, we are content, we don't need all this stuff. But there is a sense of they, in many ways, trapped by their, the gift that they've been given. And it's almost like a curse and how much it affects those people who leave and want to come back, obviously. So there is a tragic element of they are tied to where they are. Mm, and yeah. that ability to form connections outside of their little pocket is, is, is a quite sad lifestyle, no matter how much enlightenment and knowledge and strength and intelligence. So they don't get to share that or don't get to share that with uh, the rest of the universe. And so those connections and commitments and opportunities fade by the wayside which is which i think is, is very sad and very tragic yeah it's a feeling of ships passing in the night that mm. they, their their worlds briefly intersected love is not strong enough for either of them to give up their respective responsibilities exactly and what about you what was your second i chose one that i am i never quite felt myself rooting for them as a couple but that is because they were they had everything against them and so poorly served from beginning to end. Yeah. This is from Star Trek Enterprise. Oh. Uh, Trip Tucker and to Paul. Right. I mean, from the beginning, the sense here is that their relationship was not in service of the characters or not character driven. It was in service of ratings. And the number of awkward decon chamber rubbing gel on each other sequences that led up to this re- relationship being kindled and the aborted attempts to set to Paul up as a romantic interest for other characters in the show. Just it, it the starting point for this feels somewhat cynical and thin. Yeah. Um, to Paul had a, there, there was a moment, there was an episode or two where to Paul and Jonathan Archer, the, the captain and first officer of the first Warp 5 starship in Starfleet flirted with confessing romantic feelings for each other. And they did that very nice thing where T'Pol said, if in theory there were something there, we of course could never act on it. And they both agreed, oh, of course we could never act on that if that were ever true, which it isn't. <laughs> it's not. Um <laughs> <laughs> but well, that, I'm convinced. I'm convinced. <laughs> that felt to me like the writers walking up to a line and realizing, nah, that'd be too much. Yeah. That, we can't cross that line. But what could we cross? How about the chief engineer? That could work. <laughs> and there is the romance grows out of Trip Tucker suffering the emotional trauma of his sister's death in a terrorist attack on Earth. He's going through some stuff and to Paul's Vulcan meditation techniques, and it turns out massage techniques enable him to work through that to a certain extent. And they hot. initially bond in the heat of therapy, as it that's, were. That sounds so hot. <laughs> I know. It's so Wow. <laughs> Tell you why, I'm, gee, could someone put the aircon on it? It's boiling over here. That's yeah. sex appeal right there. 
Yeah, and just as the awkwardness is passing and it seems like we might be ready for something real, like a real emotion to occur on screen here, to Paul's betrothal to her her arranged husband, as happens in Vulcan culture, as we've learned, that comes to the fore and Trip has to escort her and effectively be her best man at her wedding and give her away at her wedding. And he is, of course devastated of course and then there is plot twist after plot twist with these two where they keep like getting to that place where you would almost care if they got together and then it's disrupted by some plot twist and then at the end of it trip tucker dies in the episode before the finale which is and it's ultimately unrequited so yes. these two I think if there had been an effort to write a genuine relationship here, it could have been something satisfying, but it was continually disrupted by what felt like party tricks of narrative of, oh, see if you can deal with this one, you crazy kids. Yeah. And yeah, it, so it never quite gets there. And now that one of them has died, we will never know what might have been. Never know, never know. So, well, yeah, I'm aware of so, like the certain beats of of Enterprise. I was aware of the ultimate fate of a trip, but I did not know that the their fate of their romance was already sealed long before. Yeah, his, just uh, for completeness, to give you a sense, the last plot twist is that they discover that their DNA has been stolen, and some aliens have created a child that is genetically theirs and they rescue the child from that alien culture and then the child like it's a poor clone and it ultimately dies and so they are without ever having come together as a couple to create a child they are traumatized by the death of their child and that prevents them from getting together this is it man sci-fi sci-fi is terrible for romance. i know i know so certainly star-crossed lovers i think it satisfies what we're going for definitely that is that is a, a broad range of tragic to to just not being in the right place at the right time <laughs> let's see what i did there I want to say, though, I have hope, Rob. I still have hope. There are examples of couples that do work out. And I want to say Miles o and Keiko O'Brien. Yes, very much so. And I want to say... Garrick and Garrick and Bashir. <laughs> of course. Of we didn't, course. Even, we no. didn't even talk about Dax and, and Worf. <laughs> that was true. Polana Torres and Tom Perez. There we go. But that's kind of a weird one anyway. That's a whole it's other... It's super weird. It's but super they weird. Get there. And they, they get, get there. there. They get married. They have a baby. They live happily ever after. They do, but it, it's super weird. Yeah. And, oh, look, I... And I'm going to put it out there, you know. I reckon Troy and... Um, They'll be okay. Troy and Rike are going to be fine. Whatever it is, they can get past they, it. They... they the, Oh, my God. The, what they put them through in season one of Picard... Will... I'm sure one of them has been secretly replaced by an alien or something like that. And that'll yeah. explain everything. Yeah, it's a whole animated thing. It's like a, it's a shape-shifting Romulan mm -hmm. spy. Mm -hmm. Easy. So yeah, that's us. That's our return to our regular episode structure. We have episode two coming up just a couple of days away. Yes, I can't believe... <sighs> Again, I can feel my hopes getting too high. But I was about to say, I can't believe we are getting what feels like a new Star Trek movie every week for 10 weeks. Look, I'm glad you didn't say that because that's <laughs> peaking yourself at a point far too high for it to... Yeah. But look, we'll, we will wait and see. I didn't say they would be good movies. I didn't say they would all be good. Look, we'll ha we have, it's either going to be Nemesis or it's going to be First Contact. 
or yeah, we've got a fifth cannon now, but it's going to be 10 hours long. So look, we wait and, and see, and we'll take it in week to week. You'll be joining us every week. Kevin will be here. I'll be here. We'll connect it to a broader issue. That's the way we do things here at Subspace Radio and um, keep watching. And until next week, Kevin. See you around the galaxy.